Praise for the light from heaven and for the voice of awe. Praise for the glorious vision the persecutor saw. O Lord, for Paul's conversion, we bless your name today. Come shine within our darkness and guide us on our way. Welcome once again to Proclaiming the One, majoring in the minors. Today we're going to take a look at the conversion of St. Paul. The church has set aside January 25 for our celebration and commemoration of the conversion of St. Paul. It's a feast and festival that has uh, been celebrated in the church for many, many centuries. It has... Uh, been one that when the uh, reformers really cleaned up the church calendar and got rid of many, many uh, minor festivals, commemorations, and observances, this is one that the reformers kept and kept intentionally. It uh, dates back, according to uh, the little research that I found, it dates back to the 6th century in Gaul and is uh, widely, widely observed throughout the church, January 25th, the conversion of St. Paul. My name is Pastor Clint Poppy. Along with me is Pastor Adam Moline. We are privileged to serve the saints at Good Shepherd Lutheran Church in Lincoln, Nebraska. Pastor, welcome to Proclaiming the One once again. What up, yo? <laughs> yeah, I never know what you're going to say over there. The conversion of St. Paul, January 25, and it really comes in a um, trio of minor festivals. We have Titus on January 26, we have Timothy on January 24, and the conversion of St. Paul on January 25. And so we've got these three right in a row. Rarely do we get an opportunity to celebrate all three of them in a given year. And uh, I think it's a wonderful opportunity with this particular program to park the car, to take a look at the appointed readings for the day. And uh, if you uh, are unaware or curious with regard to the details of the conversion of St. Paul. Our first reading from Acts 9 will give us all the hard data that we need. And uh, Pastor, if it's all right with you, I'd like to start our program with uh, not the gospel reading like we normally do, but I'd like to start our program with that first reading in Acts chapter 9. You all right with that? That sounds fine. Acts 9, 1 to 22. So we have a long narrative here, but that's on purpose. That's intentional because in this long narrative, we will get the conversion of St. Paul. Take it away, Pastor. And maybe it's worth pointing out here, just as a reminder before we read this, that uh, we're going to read about a guy named Saul, who is actually Paul. And before uh, a certain point in the book of Acts, he just had a different name. And, uh, and so when we talk about Saul, we're talking about Paul. They are one and the same. I'm given a name in uh, Christian baptism. Yes. And uh, that's what's going on here, isn't it? I think so. Uh, of course, it takes a little time for that to uh, get out and for the name to become well used in the, the book. Okay, very good. Okay, <laughs> Acts 9, 1 to 22. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. 
Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying, and he has seen a vision of a man named Ananias coming in and laying his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus. And immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. Wow. I don't know what else to say. Wow. Uh, Growing up in a uh, congregation in my hometown of West Point, St. Paul Lutheran Church, on one side of the sanctuary, a very long, narrow sanctuary, one side of the sanctuary there are stained glass windows depicting the life of Saul, the conversion of Paul and ultimately the beheading of Paul and as a uh, as a youngster growing up and watching uh, these windows uh, peering into them and being reminded of the life of Saul now Paul and uh, I, I just I get shivers up my spine thinking about it how in this artwork, the Bible was taught and proclaimed day after day after day after day, and uh, you know, I my eyes were always drawn to the uh, to the last window where we have um, 
the the head bouncing uh, in the uh, last stained glass window, but the first one too, where where you have Saul with a walking stick and this light coming from heaven, and he's trying to hold out the light, but he can't. Uh, th- this is uh, this is amazing, and uh, what God has taught us here, as as you were reading the the other biblical images that were just evoked from these words and from this page it is uh, it is an amazing an amazing account so rather than talking about how amazing it is let's talk about it you already talked a little bit about Saul uh, and uh, the name and that's how it starts out here Saul and we've got Saul as the name um, but Saul still breathing uh, threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. Uh, Pastor, can you give us a little bit of a, a background or a history to Saul? We're, we're introduced to Saul with the stoning of Stephen. And so what has happened now between the stoning of Stephen and the account that begins here in Acts chapter 9? Yeah, uh, Saul is first mentioned uh, standing there at the stoning of Stephen, and he's kind of the coat watcher, uh, so that people can take off their cloaks to throw the stones more effectively. Yeah, to get a to get a better um, to get a better velocity on their stone throwing. Right, and, and we have a you know this is great too because uh, we understand the the reason that Stephen is stoned is because there's an interregnum as far as the Roman rulers of the area. One governor's on his way back to Rome being recalled, while another one's on his way. So we even have a good idea of the timing of this, and we understand how it's happening, and Saul's introduced there as uh, being kind of the supervisor of this attack. Um, in between there, then, uh, we don't really know a whole lot about what happens with Saul, but we have a couple other things where Philip is proclaiming the gospel uh, as the church is forced out of Jerusalem by this persecution that begins, which Saul is involved in. Uh, the gospel continues to spread outside of Jerusalem then, and so it goes up into the region of Samaria. Uh, we have the Ethiopian eunuch who's converted, um, walking in the, uh, the desert, um, and uh, we have all the different conversions where the gospel spreads beyond Jerusalem uh, as a result of the persecution that Saul is involved in. And uh, so that's kind of what happens, and now we pick up with Saul still breathing anger and hatred, and he sees the gospel spreading beyond Jerusalem, and so he thinks, I think the time's here now that I need to go take this persecution beyond Jerusalem as well to get those people who have fled. It's, uh, it's obvious that Saul is a man of law and order. While he wants to root out this uh, Christianity thing, uh, he's not going to do so in a riotous mob. He goes to the leaders. He wants permission. He's, uh, he's going to do things decently and in order, at least according to his own mind. The, the question that I have for you, Pastor, uh, why Damascus? Why is his uh, sight set on the synagogues at Damascus? And why is he traveling to Damascus uh, specifically to root out this, uh, what he believes is a uh, Christian sect? Well, uh, the Christians are there at the, the cities of Damascus. Damascus at that time would be very close to the edge. It kind of goes back and forth occasionally throughout history, uh, but it's the edge of the Roman Empire. Uh, it's likely at this time outside the Roman Empire, ruled by a different king. Of course, uh, these kingdoms have lots of interaction between one another, and so it's 
it's not uh, unheard of for them to go there. But uh, he, he's headed to Damascus, and I think uh, whether he knows this or not, I don't think he does, it is ultimately going to fulfill some of the accounts of the Old Testament, specifically um, the, I'd, I'd say, the um, the cleansing of um, Naaman from his leprosy, the root, the the general of the Syrian army, um, who's going to eventually come and even destroy Jerusalem itself. So uh, he's going to fulfill that. I don't know if he understands that, uh, but that's where he's headed, and that's what God is working in this. Is Damascus a a major travel center, trade center? Uh, Is he worried that it will spread further into the Roman Empire from Damascus, and if he can root it out at that core, that that will be helpful to the anti-Christian cause. Is there any of that going on? Um, I think from Paul's perspective, and again, now I'm, I'm reading into what we know historically speaking, I don't know that Paul is necessarily worried about it spreading into the Roman Empire, but he is concerned about uh, its effect upon the Jewish faith. Uh, Christianity claims to be the fulfillment of the Jewish faith, the continuation of the Jewish faith, and uh, the Jewish faith um, is suffering as a result as people convert to Christianity. And so his desire is to save the the Jewish faith from the Christians. And in Damascus, as a result of the diaspora and all the other things going on, there is a sizable number of Jewish people living there. Okay. We need to take our first break. We are looking at Acts chapter 9, the conversion of St. Paul. Don't change that dial. You are listening to KNNALP 95.7 FM, Lincoln, Nebraska. Welcome back to Proclaiming the One, Majoring in the Minors, Pastor Poppy, Pastor Moline. Today we're looking at the conversion of St. Paul, January 25 on the liturgical calendar. We uh, took our first segment, we uh, did a little introduction, and uh, we also began our study of the first reading appointed for the conversion of St. Paul, Acts 9, 1 to 22. We've talked a little bit about who Saul is why Saul is uh, so zealous in his uh, hatred and uh, desire to extinguish Christianity. He has now uh, moved on, and uh, he wants to go to Damascus, and he is very, very zealous. And while he is on the way to Damascus, something very, very dramatic happens. Suddenly, a light from heaven flashed around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Let's, uh, let's stop right there and take a look at uh, this part of the conversion of St. Paul. We have a light and we have a voice. And this voice is identified as Jesus. 
Pastor, thoughts on uh, that part of our text? Yeah, I think uh, we see here a theophany, and so in a sense, it's kind of like the transfiguration, but not quite. Uh, Jesus uh, is revealing himself directly to Paul uh, in the same sort of light that God revealed himself to Moses, uh, and he's doing it in uh, uh, in this kind of desert place, if you will, um, between the the borders of the Roman Empire and the city of Damascus, uh, which I looked it up while during the break as a part of the Nabataean um, kingdom at that time, and uh, not until 106 would it be officially annexed into the empire again. Um, and so you see this this taking place and these events where God reveals himself clearly as Jesus in the same sort of theophany that would take place in the Old Testament. And when Paul sees the light and hears the voice, he knows that it's God because he knew his Bible. And uh, now he's also been told that Jesus is this God. Is there significance in the phrase when Jesus says, I am Jesus? I think there is a significance there because, uh, again, this is a theophany and uh, fulfilling Old Testament things. And so you see the words, I am Jesus, being uh, reflective of the words of God to Moses, I am that I am. And uh, uh, so, again, you see this is kind of a unique thing. And as Jesus uh, revealed himself, especially with the I am statements in the Gospel of John, I am the light of the world, I am the bread of life, I am the resurrection and the life, and on and on and on. Um, So he says, uh, I'm Jesus whom you are persecuting. And then in verse 6, he says, but rise and enter the city and you will be told what you are to do. Whenever I see the word rise, I'm thinking of Easter, I'm thinking of resurrection, and because uh, I'm constantly programmed and wired this way, when we get down in verse 18, at the end of the discussion with Ananias, then he, Saul, rose and was baptized. Am I reading too much into this particular little word, rise and rose, or is there a Jesus uh, Good Friday Easter connection here? I think that the word is used on purpose, Um, and again, it is this idea that in these events that are being recorded for us, Saul is rising from the dead, at least uh, literally, uh, not not literally, but uh, in liter literary literary fashion. There's the there word. There you go. <laughs> Tough day today, um, and so that is a part of what's going on. Uh, I want to point out, though, it hasn't happened for him yet, and it doesn't happen until uh, God sends a pastor to him to preach the word and to baptize him. At this point, Saul isn't sure what's going on. He's confused. His whole world has been rocked. He's been confronted with the law that says he's been persecuting the true God, which he has to wrap his mind around. Uh, And uh, God still is going to use the regular means of the church to finish that conversion, if you will. You made the connection to Naaman in our uh, first segment. And, you know, one of the things that torqued Naaman off was that the, uh, the great prophet didn't even come out and do some big miracle. Well, 
Jesus could have told him everything that Ananias told him. Jesus could have done everything that uh, Ananias did, but he sends him to this lowly servant on Straight Street, and uh, we, we see so many parallels going on here, and I think the point that you make is generally the way God works in the church is not by light from above and dramatic visions and all these kind of things, but he sends a humble, lowly preacher to preach the word and its truth and purity and administer the sacraments according to the command and promise of God. I don't think we can emphasize that or dwell on that too much. Now, pastor, in verse 7, it says, the men who were traveling with him stood speechless. They heard the voice. Um, is it surprising to you that Saul was not the only one who heard the voice of Jesus? Uh, no, I don't think so. Again, um, we see, in a sense, uh, this is kind of reflective of Old Testament things where oftentimes people were able to hear the voice of God, even if they didn't go to see him directly or uh, witness him directly, uh, even... Um, Boy, even kind of crazier in the account of Balaam, you know, the donkey mm -hmm. sees God um, and Balaam doesn't. And that's kind of the same thing here. And that's because Christ is specifically looking at converting Saul for the purpose of preaching the gospel and expanding the church. In verse 9, it says, And for three days, after his traveling companions led him to Damascus, and for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Again, whenever I see three days... You think of Jesus. I'm thinking of Jesus. Am I, am I uh, looking at too much here, Pastor? No, I don't think so at all. And this is a, a common thing... Um, throughout all the pages of Scripture, even the Old Testament, with uh, like the account of Joseph and uh, uh, Abraham and Jacob. We have three days all the time. Isaac was taken to be sacrificed uh, to God by Abraham three on the days, third day. Three days journey. Um, yes. and, and so this is always God is very consistent in teaching these things, and if you pay attention, you can see them. Uh, Saul is in the dark for three days. And then he gets in the light. And uh, if you can't think of the three-day rest in the tomb there, uh, boy, uh, you're missing it. Okay, now starting in verse 10 of Acts chapter 9, we are introduced to a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And uh, God comes to him in a vision, and Ananias is not really all that excited about the assignment that the Lord gives him. What, what can you say about that, Pastor? No, I, I think um, Ananias talks to Christ and says, you know, this is the guy who's been persecuting the church and has come here to arrest me and throw me in jail. Are you, are you sure about this, Lord? Do you, do you? And, I, and I don't know that he's uh, doing it in unfaith. He's just double-checking maybe to make sure um, because I don't know that— I think the early Christians understand that they might have to die for the faith, but they're not going to seek it out, and they're not going to do so for the wrong purpose. And that's an important thing for us to remember as well. We don't seek out martyrdom. If it finds us, it finds us. Uh, but uh, it is at God's control and God's hands. It's uh, it's interesting. I can, I can see a little bit of Moses in here when God calls Moses in the burning bush, and Moses has a an excuse or two why it shouldn't be shouldn't be him but someone else. I think of Gideon and the fleece. Um, this this is you know not all people 
In fact, rarely do you have someone of superhuman faith. Uh, even Mary, how can this be since I'm a virgin? I mean, we ask questions, you know, and with God, nothing is impossible. Thanks be to God. I want to, Pastor, I want to focus on verse 15. The Lord said to Ananias, Go, for he, Saul, is my chosen, is a chosen instrument of mine to carry out my name before the Gentiles, kings, children of Israel. I will show him how much he has to suffer for the sake of my name. That, that phrase, chosen instrument of mine. What are we to glean from that particular phrase? I believe that phrase is unique in all of Scripture. Yeah, and uh, I think it's an important thing for us to wrap our brains around is that God actually is in charge of the church. And even uh, this is in the book that we oftentimes call the Acts of the Apostles, but uh, St. Luke doesn't see it that way when he writes it. He begins it by saying, the last book I told you what Jesus began to do uh, in his life and ministry up until his death and resurrection. And now this book is going to tell you what he's going to keep on doing uh, is essentially what he's saying. So he began in the last book and now Christ is continuing to work. And so we see even here in that phrase, God, Jesus, is the one who is creating and building the church. He's doing it by using broken, sinful people like St. Paul, a murderer and a persecutor of the church, uh, but he's the one that's doing it. And so Paul has a use for, for from God to do a particular thing, and, and God's going to make sure he does that. We have, uh, and Ananias does what the Lord uh, commands him to do. Uh, he lays his hands on him, and something like scales falls from his eyes. And it says here that uh, so that uh, you would regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And my question for you is, you know, we've talked about God sent a preacher to preach the word and administer baptism to him. Was he filled with the Holy Spirit with the laying on of hands? Was he filled with the Holy Spirit when the scales fell off his eyes? Or was he filled with the Holy Spirit when he was baptized? Well, I'd say um, the Holy Spirit promises to work in the Word, and it's not different for St. Paul. So he is filled with the Holy Spirit when Ananias comes and uh, he enters the house and preaches to him, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road has sent me that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. When the Word comes, the Holy Spirit is attached to it. And the same thing in the waters of baptism. Uh, when he is baptized, it's in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit's attached to the Word, which is combined with the water, and in that he receives the Holy Spirit. Uh, and so in these events, in these things, the same way that you were converted is the same way that Paul is converted, by the Word, uh, sometimes preached, sometimes attached to physical means uh, in the sacraments, but that's how he's converted. And that is an excellent response, an excellent answer there, Pastor. Now, uh, we're running out of time in this segment, and uh, in our next segment, again, we're going to do something a little different. We're going to go to the epistle from Galatians 1, because it kind of takes over the narrative of what happens to Paul after uh, these things that go on in uh uh, in Damascus with Ananias, his conversion, his baptism, and all this. At the end of Acts 9, and this is, uh, so I'm going to set things up. At the end of Acts 9, Paul immediately starts preaching. 
And then the account that we have in Galatians 1, uh, it's not a contradiction, but it expands on that. And so, Pastor, I want, I want you to help bridge the end of Acts 9 uh, text, 1 to 22, and the uh, epistle reading that we're going to take up in our next segment, Galatians 1, 11 to 24. This is Proclaiming the One, Majoring in the Minors, the Conversion of St. Paul. Don't change that dial. You are listening to KNNALP 95.7 FM, Lincoln, Nebraska. Welcome back to Proclaiming the One, Majoring in the Minors. We're looking at the conversion of St. Paul. January 25 is the day that the church has set aside for this uh, minor festival. In our first two segments, we looked in pretty great detail at the account, the narrative of the conversion of St. Paul, Acts 9, 1-22. At the end of Acts uh, 9, 1-22, we see that uh, Paul or Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. Now we get a little more biographical information on Saul, now Paul, in the first chapter of Galatians. That's the epistle reading that is appointed for the conversion of St. Paul. Galatians 1, 11 to 24. Pastor, you want to share those words, please? For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely jealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart before I was born, and who called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his Son to me, in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went away into Arabia, and returned again to Damascus. Then after three years I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas, and remained with him fifteen days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. In what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only were hearing it said, He who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. Okay, so here in Galatians uh Paul is giving some biographical information, but he's not doing this uh, just as a run-of-the-mill kind of a thing. We, we have people who are questioning Paul's authority, questioning his authenticity, 
or saying or at least insinuating that uh this whole conversion of Paul thing uh, maybe maybe made up or whatever, and and he just uh, took the message of the apostles and ran off on his own. Uh, is that is that really what uh, the question of Paul's authority is all about here, Pastor? About whether say it one more time whether whether, whether his message and his conversion is authentic uh, or right. whether he's just hearing the message from somebody else. And that's I think what Paul's point is here. Um, he says, yes, my conversion was authentic, but uh, the word that I'm teaching you isn't just something I made up, and it's not something that uh, some other person made up. It's a message that was uh, revealed from God and came to us from God, and that's its authority, and that's why I can preach it. It's because God has done these things in the personal work of Jesus. Uh, and so, you know, that's his focus, again, is always to bring people to Christ and say, look, it's not about Paul, it's not about Peter or the other apostles, it's about Jesus, and that's where our faith needs to be. So when uh, when uh, Paul here in Galatians 1 is saying, uh, you know of my former life, how I persecuted the church, advanced in Judaism beyond many of my age, extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. There, there's no contradiction here between what Paul is writing in Galatians 1 and what is recorded for us in Acts 9, is there? No, there's not at all. In fact, uh, Acts says the same thing, essentially. And the reality is, is um, uh, these are probably both things written with Paul's Influence, And so Paul is telling uh, us in Acts 9 what happened. He's telling us in Acts 26 what happened. And he's telling us here in Galatians what happened, that Jesus showed up as he was on the road to Damascus and said, stop persecuting me. Uh, he went to the city of Damascus. Uh, Ananias came. That's not mentioned in Galatians, um, but uh, it is the reality. And he's converted to Christianity. And later on, he began to preach and teach and uh, lead people people to the faith, the same faith that he has. One of the, one of the amazing things in this particular text that always gets me is that uh, the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. Man's gospel is really no gospel at all, is it? No, it's not. Um, and I think that's the key. And one of the things that's the reality of our, our faith is we're not just telling you what our opinion is. We're telling you what God says in his word, and that's the place where we can find the truth. In verse 16, Paul says uh, in Galatians 1, he says that uh, Christ set me apart before I was born, called me by his grace, and was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach. Is there is there anything striking about the way Paul describes how God called him. I think what Paul sees is beautiful in the sense that he sees it as a bigger thing than just him or his opinions. Uh, it's not like Paul brought the things that are happening about by his own works or actions or that he sought them, but rather God, before he was born, uh, knew this is exactly how it's going to happen, and everything was set up by God. Again, we, we talked about this before, it's Jesus who is spreading the gospel through his instrument or vessel, 
Paul. Uh, and uh, so it's not like Paul is doing this for his own good or that he's have it planned out. God is at work in the actions of Paul. And I think as a pastor, that's an important thing to see. Um, the things that are happening and going on, God knew about ahead of time, and he's placed you here to preach his word in that particular situation. Even now, like we're dealing with the pandemic, right? Uh, and we say, oh, it's so miserable and terrible. And look at the church being closed down and the church being persecuted. And even the government seems to be going after the church in some ways. And yet God has placed us here to preach the word, even facing this issue. And and he knew we'd be dealing with it ahead of time before we even did. And that's that's some comfort, at least in the sense that we're not alone and we're not abandoned in that. Amen. Amen. Uh, thank you. Now, in um, uh, at the end of verse 16 and in verse 17 and 18, we have some historical information here, Pastor, and I want you to uh, comment on this. It says, I did not immediately consult with anyone. It's like I didn't go to the apostles to get our stories straight or anything like that. I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went away to Arabia and then returned again to Damascus. Then, after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Peter, Cephas, and remained with him 15 days. Pastor, comments and observations on this historical insight that Paul is telling us in Galatians 1. Right, uh, and it's not a surprising thing. The uh, Arabian Desert uh, goes all the way up uh, from Saudi Arabia through Iraq and into Syria, and Damascus is just on the edge of it. So he's converted, and in a sense he goes to confirmation class, maybe be a way to think about it. He spends three years studying the faith, studying the scriptures, uh, thinking about it, looking at it, and learning what Christians actually believe, teach, and confess in those three years. Um, and then he returns to the city of Damascus uh, and continues to preach and, and teach that way. And so what he's telling us here in detail in Galatians is summarized um, with these words in the book of Acts chapter 9, when many days had passed. Uh, and so Luke doesn't go into all those details here, um, in writing the book of Acts, even though Paul does in writing the book of Galatians. And I think, actually, if you look at it from a uh, testimony perspective, it's good that all these details, some details are given one place, other details are given another place, because it actually increases the validity of the testimony um, by giving different details in different locations. If everything was exactly the same every single time, it would seem rehearsed or perhaps invented or false. And and this reality is Paul's emphasizing different parts of it and giving different details increases its uh, validity and truthfulness. And the only one who can really know Know all these details is the one who lived it, right. and that's that's why these are so important too. In verse twenty one, it said, "Then I went into the regions of Syria and uh, is it Cilicia or Cilicia? I say Cilicia. Okay, uh, what's what's the deal about uh, going back into the regions of Syria and Cilicia?" Well, uh, you know, after his time out uh, in confirmation class, I guess would be— Or seminary. Or seminary, right? 
Um, he returns there to that region and begins preaching and teaching. He doesn't go immediately to Jerusalem. Um, perhaps he had bad memories of uh, killing Christians there and knows how he'll be received. Uh, so he goes off and does other things. And in fact, then we go back to the book of Acts and we learn that the reason he kind of leaves the region of Damascus and Syria and Cilicia is because the Jews there decide to take him and kill him. In fact, he's lowered down through the wall uh, by a window in the middle of the night. And that's the way he escapes those places alive. So now he's on the receiving end of the persecution where once he had been on the giving end. It could simply be, and that's a great observation, Pastor, it could simply be too that he's so consumed with preaching the gospel, um, he has no particular need to go to Jerusalem because he knows people are preaching the gospel there. Uh, Could be as simple as that. Pastor, at the end of our Galatians 1 text, it says, um, I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only were hearing it said, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy, and they glorified God because of me. How is that a fitting way to end this particular section of Galatians 1? Well, again, you'll notice these early Christians glorify God that God's doing this work, that God's using this person and has changed their heart. And I think sometimes we could do a better job of that. Uh, Lots of times we just write people off or we get angry or, you know, uh, I don't care what you think because this is what you said before. And yet God still is working to create Christians out of everybody. And if he does convert, if he does save, uh, our praise and thanks goes to God for doing that. Even our enemies uh, might become Christian if only the word comes to them and they hear it and believe it. And so I think it's also then an encouragement for us to continue to preach the word, uh, even when it seems not to be bearing fruit, and to stick to that word and trust that God's at work in it. It's uh, interesting to me to sometimes just kind of mentally play a game. And I think of the biggest, most egregious people who speak against Christianity, who speak against the Christian church, who do everything that they can to undermine what we believe, teach, and confess as Christians, if God today would choose to convert them and make them preachers of the gospel. What, uh, what, a, what an amazing witness and testimony that would be to the world, and at the same time, how they too would be mocked and persecuted by the world. I, th- I think of, uh, I don't even know who the guy is, this uh, rapper, this Kanye, uh, whatever. Uh, another one that comes to mind, he's all over Twitter uh, preaching the gospel, is Mr. T. Uh, you know, th- there are some examples of this today, and we just blow by them. Yeah. Instead, we ought to rejoice that God uh, uh, is even willing to save us, let alone uh, all these other people. Amen. Amen. We need to take a break. This is Proclaiming the One, majoring in the minors. We're looking at the conversion of St. Paul. We'll be right back. You are listening to KNNALP 95.7 FM, Lincoln, Nebraska. Oh, 
Welcome back to Proclaiming the One, Majoring in the Minors, the Conversion of St. Paul, January 25 on the liturgical calendar. Just uh, as a reminder, our bumper music is LSB 517 by All Your Saints in Warfare. A wonderful hymn. We sing it a lot here at Good Shepherd. There are verses designated for many, if not most, of the minor festivals, feasts, and commemorations in the church year, and the verses that are, the stanzas that are written for each particular day really teach a lot and give us a great introduction into the particular celebration that we're about to have. I'm uh, Pastor Clint Poppy, along with me, Pastor Adam Oline. We serve the saints at Good Shepherd Lutheran Church in Lincoln, Nebraska. Come join us for worship, 8 and 10.30 on Sunday mornings, Wednesday evenings year-round at 6.30. Our services are broadcast live on KNNALP 95.7 right here in Lincoln, Nebraska. You can download the app. You can listen on our website, thecross957.org, and you can check out lots and lots and lots of theological programming at our podcast site, KNNA Theological programming there you go and uh, pastor moline has a podcast site for his sermons called with intrepid hearts there you go with uh, intrepid heart with intrepid heart right out of the book of Congo. yeah phrase from our lutheran confessions i'm not near that clever and witty uh pastor poppy sermons so um check it out and we love your feedback many many times have we had the occasion and the privilege to lead worship and preach for these minor festivals the gospel reading for the conversion of saint paul matthew 19 27 to 30. Pastor? Then Peter said in reply, See, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my namesake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. Okay, if I told you that uh, this seems to be, at first glance, kind of an odd gospel reading for the conversion of St. Paul, I'd be lying to you because uh, it does seem a little bit odd. We have this conclusion to Jesus talking with the rich young man. Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? Matthew nineteen sixteen, And um, so then he goes on and tells him that it's uh, pretty much impossible for somebody who's rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Uh, the whole camel through the eye of the needle uh, analogy that is there. And then uh, the disciples, when they heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? That's Matthew 19.25. Verse 26, Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but with God all things are uh, possible. And then Peter says, uh, well, what about me? What about me? Uh, I've left everything to follow you. Do, do I get something extra special? 
Pastor, have I framed that or set that up uh, correctly, or am I looking at this wrong? No, I, that's uh, exactly what's going on here. Is this rich man, rich man, young? Uh, the rich young man uh, is told that he needs to give up everything because Christ doesn't compete in our hearts. Um, it doesn't mean we can't have possessions. Some have taken it that way, uh, but what it means is that Christ has to be first. I think. We really struggle with that here in the United States. I've been thinking this more and more with all the things that we're addicted to, our phones, our TVs, um, our uh, politicians, our uh, everything. Um, we're addicted to all these things, and they compete with Christ in our heart, and that's really our sin and um, our own um, challenges that we need to repent of, um, and Christ is very clear on that. And I think it also displays uh, human nature. Because Christians will gladly and easily say, well, I know I'm saved by grace, through faith, not by good works. And then out of the other side of our mouth, we say, yeah, but look at all the good works I've done. Don't I get any credit for that? And I see a little bit of that, maybe a lot of that coming through in this uh, question of Peter. And so we should really look then at the response of Jesus to Peter, because I think this response kind of catches us a little bit off guard. In uh, our text, Matthew 19, verse 28, Jesus said not only to Peter, but he says to all of the apostles, truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne. Pastor, can you give me a few words about the new world and when Jesus sits on his glorious throne? Uh, it's the world that is coming prepared as a bride for Christ uh, on the last day when this world is destroyed by fire. Um, the new world will be created and will exist forever perfectly without sin. Christ will uh, uh, come and uh, take us into that world, resurrecting us body and soul uh, so that we might live with him forever. That's the world he's speaking of. Scripture is clear. We worship God and God alone, the one true God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. People are perhaps curious, if not confused, when Jesus goes on to say, uh, you know, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. What is this sitting on a throne and judging thing? Um, because it appears here that he's talking not only to the apostles, but he's talking to all Christians. Pastor, what's going on here? Well, uh, again, he's talking about uh, what is to come in the world that uh, we don't yet live in. And uh, the reality is, is that um, the Christians will be saved, and those who are not saved will uh, be sent to hell. And he's trying to teach that teaching in many different ways throughout the scriptures so that we understand it completely, so that we might rejoice that we have been saved, but also understand uh, what the consequence is if we don't believe Christ's word. And so this is another one of those places where he's uh, explaining that, this judgment that's going to take place. Our judgment has been put upon Christ. Those who do not have anything to do with him, their judgment uh, is yet to come, and that's the, the reality. And it's scary, but it's the truth. Is it okay for a Christian to say um, what Jesus is teaching here is not 100% clear to my fallen mind or my fallen heart, how 
the apostles specifically uh, will be judging and sitting on thrones uh, after the last day in heaven. Uh, I can't wrap my mind around that. I, I think that's the reality, is that we just have to take it at its word and say, uh, this is what is ahead, and uh, Christ will fulfill it on the last day, and then we'll understand a little bit better. We will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. I think most people would uh, say eternal life. Yeah, I get that. What about this hundredfold inheritance or a uh, hundredfold blessings? Uh what is Jesus talking about? Well, it's a comparison, so um, and I wouldn't take it as a literal like you're going to get 100 percent more uh, or 100 times more. But uh, you're 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 giving up the things in this world that you had loved, your homes, your family, and all this to follow Christ, to trust in Him, and uh, you might say you know, what's the, Pascal's wager? What am I getting out of this? Um, the reality is, is that when the resurrection comes, you're going to have way more than you've given up, way more than you can understand, way more than you can um, even think about, because you'll be at peace and comfort in a world without sin forevermore. Uh, Christ says it this way in John's gospel, I'm going to prepare many mansions for you, and if I go to prepare them, I will certainly come to take you with me to them. Um Isaiah, he says, you know, uh, the finest of wines, and uh, to paraphrase Moline-wise, the best of cheeses, uh, that's what you're going to get when you get there. And so, yes, we're giving things up here. We're using the, the gifts God's given us to further the gospel, to um, care for the poor and the hungry and things like that. But in the end, Christ will give to us, and that's what we need to look forward to. When I hear that word hundredfold, and thank you for that, and I want to build on what you just said. When I think of that word hundredfold, I, I immediately think back to the parable of the sower and the harvest that is produced as the word is sown, and 60, 80, 100-fold harvest. Uh, could that be something that Jesus is alluding to, the harvest of souls that will happen through the proclamation of the word? Um. I mean, I think that's a separate uh, scripture, and it does use the same wording, but I think the referent here is a little different. In, in that one, he's talking about there's going to be all these people that are saved. In this one, he's definitely saying, you know, you've given these things up. Um, trust that God will give more to you when you get into his kingdom. So okay. I, I don't—it's I don't, There's not that that's untrue. It's just I don't think that's the same reference. Okay, thank you. And I, I just uh, wanted to ask that question. The uh, Many of the— Saints days, the minor festival days, especially the uh, apostles and Paul, the uh, first line of the introit is also the first line of the Book of Concord, the introduction to the Augsburg Confession, Psalm 119, 146, I will speak of your testimonies before kings, O Lord, and shall not be put to shame. Pastor, uh, are those words true of the Apostle Paul? They are. Um, he preached in front of uh, uh, Felix and Fest, uh, Festus, I might be saying the wrong names here, uh, in the book of Acts. Uh, tradition holds, uh, whether it's true or not, it's tradition, that he was able to even preach before the emperor Nero himself um, and uh, confess the faith there. That's perhaps even the, the book of Luke and the book of Acts are written um, to some Roman uh, 
leaders in the government as a confession of what uh, the Christian faith is. And uh, uh, you can even say by extension, too, Paul has preached the word before, you know, um, Charlemagne. Uh, he's preached the word before um, every king every and emperor king. that has ever lived. Right, because his writings have been recorded for us in the Holy Scriptures, and and that's then therefore the truth. Amen. Pastor, we've had uh, we've had a lot of fun looking at the readings for the conversion of Saint Paul. The church celebrates this day on the twenty fifth of January. Would you bring things to a close by praying the collect of the day? Almighty God, you turned the heart of him who persecuted the church and by his preaching caused the light of the gospel to shine throughout the world. Grant us to ever rejoice in the saving light of your gospel and following the example of the Apostle Paul to spread it to the ends of the earth through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Amen. For Pastor Moline, I'm Pastor Poppy. Thank you for tuning in today, majoring in the minors, the conversion of St. Paul. We'll catch you again next time. God's richest blessings in Christ.